0: If you have a Bible this morning, turn with me to Acts chapter 19. That's where we'll be together as we worship together through the study of God's Word. And so that's where we will be. We're honestly, it's hard to believe this, we're approaching the end of our study through the book of Acts as a faith family. We have just this week and next week. And then we're going to enter into a little five-week, I'll call it a mini-series, Uh, That Ken Simpson and I are going to do together. We're going to divide it up. We're going to spend five weeks together talking about what do we as Christians believe the core values the core pillars of our faith not just of our church but who do we what do we believe as believers as Christians we're going to talk about things uh, about the Trinity the triune God God the Father God the Son God the Holy Spirit we're going to talk about how God's going to do Trinity and we're going to figure that out, how exactly that works. So come... No, I'm just kidding. That's gonna, they've been debating that for centuries. We're, we're going to do our best to explain how God is a triune God. The Trinity uh, is, a, is a triune God. We're going to talk about the virgin birth. Why is that important? Why is it important that we believe the importance of the virgin birth? We're going to talk about Scripture. What do we need to believe about Scripture as believers? We're going to talk about the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're going to talk about the gospel. Why is that important as our faith? So I encourage you, one, to come be a part of that. might be something you already know. Review is always good for us, right? And we'll hear different facets of that. But also, I want to encourage you to do this, to start praying about this. If you know of someone, might be a family member, could be a neighbor, could be a friend, a co-worker, someone that you know, maybe they're a little curious about Christianity. Maybe they know a little about it. maybe they know about you, a little bit about your faith background, and they're maybe you're curious about, and I encourage you to invite them to come those five weeks to hear about it. Could maybe you know someone, a family member, coworker, or whatever? Maybe they're a little skeptical about our faith. There's some things that are, you know, the idea that God came in the flesh as Jesus Christ, then died on the cross for the entire sins of the world, and then came back to life to seal of salvation. That's a lot to believe. It's called faith. So it can be understandable how some people could be skeptical about that. So I encourage you to invite someone to come and hear about that. Ken does a great job. I'll do my best to keep up with Ken. Uh, We're going to divide that up over those five weeks together. and It'll be a great time of study for our faith family. But here we are in Acts chapter 19. We're walking through, not verse by verse through Acts, because we'd be here for a really long time if we had done that, but maybe one day we'll do it. But we're just hitting the highlights of Acts. We've talked about the church. What is the church? Why did God establish it? What are the importance, in the, the importance of the church, the benefits of the church? Then we have, we've gone on here lately. We talked about last week, we talked about the importance of doctrinal integrity. That's what we talked about last week for the church, the importance of doctrinal integrity. We were introduced to a man, a man named Apollos. He was a native of Alexandria. He came to Ephesus. He was an elegant man. He was a smart man. He was well-spoken. He was good at teaching the scriptures, but he was teaching something. What was he teaching? He was teaching the baptism of John. He was missing a facet of the gospel. And so then we learned uh, about a couple, Priscilla and Aquila, a husband and a wife, a mature couple, who pulled him aside and corrected him on that. Then we saw Apollos then went to Corinth, and there in Corinth, uh, Apollos was really a pillar of that church in Corinth. Discipled them, pastored them well, all because of a mature Christian couple, a husband and a wife, who pulled him aside and taught him what God really taught, the truths about Jesus Then we saw Paul in Ephesus, and we're going to be back in Ephesus together. And same thing, Paul was introduced to some believers, some disciples there. He asked them if they had heard of the Holy Spirit. They hadn't. The Apostle Paul taught them about the Holy Spirit, and they they were uh, baptized by the Holy Spirit. We talked a little bit about that. But then it says that that some of the religious leaders there in Ephesus, they became, verse 9, they became stubborn, and they continued in unbelief. And we talked about... We want to hold on to doctrinal integrity, but we also need to understand that there are going to be those who are going to shun the truth, those who are not going to understand it. But when we saw that the word of God, the gospel continued to increase all to the residents of Asia, the gospel spread like wildfire there in Acts chapter 19. Well, this morning we're going to be back here in Acts chapter 19. Paul is there in Ephesus And we're going to be really uh, at a pass. we're going to be in a passage of scripture that maybe perhaps none of us have really heard. Ashlyn did a great job reading it for us this morning. Maybe you haven't heard this story. We're going to talk about the significance of that. And I hesitate to use the word story. I always cringe a little bit. I don't want to be, uh, you know, I don't carry spiritual arrogancy about that. But I cringe a little bit when we use the word story for the Bible because this is not just a story. This is not like Mother Goose or Dr. Seuss or some fairy tale. This has really happened. And sometimes when we're introduced to these kinds of things, we think, wow, that's crazy. That's almost like, you know, some kind of sci-fi movie or something. We, we, we think that We don't see this on a regular basis, especially here in our country. And so I want us to just remember this really happened. And put ourselves in this situation. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to Acts chapter 19. And we're going to start reading in verse 11. And it says this. And God, key word there, God. Not Paul, not anyone else. God. Remember that all the scripture is about God. All the way back to Genesis 1.1. It says, in the beginning, God created. This is the story of God. I adjure you, by the, by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims, seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded." And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also many of those who are now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and they burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. What in the world is happening here? This is wild, isn't it? This doesn't seem real. This seems like, like kind of a sci-fi movie, like I said. Like this just doesn't even seem real. Like, what on earth is happening? Well, remember last week we talked about how Paul had came to Ephesus there and he had debated with the uh, religious leaders. It says they were stubborn and they didn't, they were filled with unbelief. Well, so he took the disciples with them and he reasoned daily in them in the hall of Tyrannus, there in Ephesus. And it said there in verse 10 of Acts 19, where we left off last week, that he was there for two years. Well, some wild and crazy things were happening in those two years in Ephesus while Paul was there. Because over these two years, God was doing amazing things through Paul. Pretty crazy, right? It was so amazing that people, they were swiping, they were stealing his handkerchiefs They were touching him with their aprons, and they were taking it back to heal the sick and demon-possessed, okay? That's something we don't see today. That's pretty wild. God was doing such amazing things through Paul. They were finding any article of clothing that they could find, and they were just trying to touch Paul with it. They would carry it back to those people who had diseases that were demon-possessed to be healed. Kind of similar to Matthew chapter 9. You remember what happened in Matthew chapter 9? The woman with the issue of blood, she just said, if I could just touch the garment, the robe of Jesus, I will be healed. And she got, there was a great crowd around Jesus, and she touched his garment. Jesus felt the power leave him, and what did he say? Who touched me? And the woman was healed just because she touched Jesus. Similar situation there. Well, there in Ephesus, there in that town in Ephesus, there were seven itinerant Jewish exorcists. Quite the career path, right? If you go on uh, monster.com or any of these job sites or whatever, you try to find a job, you don't see too many demon exorcist jobs out there, right? I don't know how you build your resume to begin casting out demons. I don't know. That's just, that's not a world I'm in. Uh, but I don't know how you build a career doing that. But that's what these seven guys did. They're, they were Jewish, Jewish men, and their job was to cast out demons. I don't know how well it paid. I don't know what the retirement plan was. Uh, but that's what their job was, was to, to cast out demons. So they traveled around casting out demons. Well, they see Paul. Paul's in their town for two years And for two years, they see Paul walking around with an unusual amount of authority, so much that people are bringing articles of clothing, touching it, taking it back to heal the sick, heal the demon possessed. So they're a little amazed and perplexed by this, and they see this, and they're like, wow, we have to work so much harder at this. I don't know what they had to do, what kind of ceremony they were performing, but they were having to work a lot harder Then Paul, and they saw the authority that Paul was using, the name of Jesus. So these guys, they're the seven sons of Sceva. Who was Sceva? He was a chief priest, a Jewish priest there in Ephesus. And so he had seven sons, and they were just called the seven sons of Sceva. So they go and they find a demon-possessed man. And here's what they say to this man. They say, in the name of Jesus, Paul's God. They apparently had seen Paul cast out demons in the name of Jesus. And so they're like, well, it works for Paul. Let's see if it can work for us. So they say, in the name of Jesus, Paul's God, we command you to come out. Then the demon spoke through the man. Remember, this is a man possessed by a demon. The demon speaks to them. And what did the demon say? They, he's, the demon basically says, we know Jesus. Isn't it interesting that even the demons know who Jesus was? The Bible teaches that even demons believe in Jesus and they shudder. They're afraid. So isn't it interesting that even if demons believe in Jesus, obviously that belief isn't a saving belief. They believe who Jesus is. They know who Jesus is. And they shudder. They're afraid. They say, we know Jesus. We've heard of Paul. Then they ask a pretty daunting question to these seven guys. Who are you? Who are you? And we have to believe that when a demon asks, who are you, that's got to be a moment of sheer terror. Right? Right? The demon asks, who are you? He says, we've heard, we know Jesus, we've heard of Paul, but who are you? And then this is what the Bible says. Folks, I'm not making this up. This is the, the truth here in the Bible. In Acts chapter 19, it says, the man left on the seven sons of Skeva." Now, okay, let's just do the ratio here for just a moment. I don't know if we have any wrestling fans, if you're into that fake. Uh, sorry, I know I'm, I'm ruining the Easter Bunny and Santa Claus right now. For some of you wrestling fans, it's fake. But here's one man on seven, okay, and he jumps on them, the seven sons of Sceva, and he, the Bible says here in Acts 19, what does it say? He leapt them and says it mastered them. I've got a fancy Greek word for what happened there. This guy whooped them, okay? He whoops them. Alright, I know a lot of us here, and it says they leave the fight, and according to Acts 19, they leave bloody and naked. Now, whenever there's a fight, we want to know who won, right? Who won? Now, if there's a fight, I had a brother, I had male cousins, we had our moments of wrestling and all that fun, okay? Uh, When there's a fight and someone loses their pants... They haven't just lost their pants. They've lost the fight. So they leave this fight bloodied and naked. This guy whoops them. He whoops them. And what happens? It says here that the city is filled with fear. I would think so. Fear. But it's interesting. This is not fear of the demons, not fear of this man. It's an awe. It's a reverence because of the power of God. Let's keep going. Look again at verse 18. I know we read this, but let's read it again. Let's see what happens. What is the result of what happened here? Okay, crazy situation. Probably didn't happen in everyday life there in Ephesus. A demon-possessed man whipping seven grown men, okay? What happened? What was the result of this? Look at 18 again. It says, And many of those who are now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to be 50,000 pieces of silver so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So you have these seven sons of Sce- Sceva. They're beaten. They're bloody. They're naked. And fear and all fall on the church at Ephesus. So believers in Christ come forward. Believers. Now that's huge. That's important. If you like to highlight underline, circle things in your Bible. Circle that word believers. That's key here to understanding what's going on. Believers, they come forward, they reveal their practices, they're confessing their sins. Others came forward, they brought their books of witchcraft, and they burned them. Now, I'm not about burning books. We've heard of that in history. You know, I'm not about that. I think that's Out there a little bit, but they were so repentant of their sin, they said, We're burning our witchcraft books. Believers, they see all of what took place, they see the power of God, and now they are confessing their sin. There's real repentance going on in the church of Ephesus. Now, there's a great book of the Bible that tells us kind of the inside workings of the church of Ephesus. What's the name of that book? Ephesians. Yeah, while Paul was there, Paul wrote a book to this church of Ephesus. It's called Ephesians. Pretty simple. It's a book that he wrote to them, a letter to give them instruction. And I wish we had time to really read through Ephesians. We're doing that as a church family through uh, this year reading Paul's writing. We studied the book of Ephesians, the fall of 2015. I encourage you to go back and read uh, Ephesians if you have time this week. But you will find out the church in Ephesus, they were real. Not just real in that they were historically there, but like, like they were real people. They were authentic. There was authentic community in that church. Because here's what's happening. They see what happens with the seven sons of Sceva. They see the power of God displayed And can you imagine this? And we know this from the book of Ephesians. This was a church. They gathered together, the people of God. They gathered together to worship, and they come forward. Okay, maybe a come-forward invitation. I don't know how they did it. They come forward. They sang, you know, 12 verses of Just As I Am, right? They came forward, and they divulge, and they confess their practices, what they were doing. They were confessing their sin. Now, these are not new Christians. These are believers. These are people in the church. They're coming. They're confessing their sin. They're being real. They're being authentic. They're being transparent with each other. And then what took place? Non-believers see this, and they start becoming believers. And they brought their books of witchcraft, and they totaled up the value. It was 50,000 pieces of silver. Now, I don't know what that would be in today's amount of money, but I'm sure it would be a lot. So you have this environment in the church of Ephesus. I love the churches of Ephesus. I mean, they are, they are real. They are grimy with each other. They're confessing their sins. So you have this environment there. It's authentic. It's honest. It's a legitimate community. In the church, confessing sin to one another now, that's not normal, is it? I don't know if you've ever, I don't know if I've ever been in a church like this. Where there's this, 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 this normal confessing and repentance. What is repentance? We've talked a little bit about repentance, how it's important in the life of the believer. What is Repentance. Repentance is simply this. It's a spiritual about-face. It's a spiritual 180. It's a a change of spiritual trajectory. It's a change. It's change. And when we become believers, when we become Christians, and we believe in the work of Jesus Christ and His death and resurrection, what that belief results in is called repentance, repentance change. There's a difference in that person's life. That's what repentance is. And so you have that at the time of salvation, but then the life of the Christian, the life of the believer is marked by repentance of change, of a realization of who God is, knowing God in such a way to where it leads to change in our lives. That we become Such an awe and a realization of His holiness. And we understand even as Christians and as believers that we are not holy. He is holy. And we repent. We change. And so here at this church in Ephesus, they are confessing. They are being transparent. They're taking ownership of their sin. Now, when I hear this, I immediately get really uncomfortable right? Let's be honest. Let's be real. Let's be transparent. Why? Because we like to come in our American church. We like to come and be around other beliefs and immediately throw up a facade, right? We like to give that idea of everything's fine. I'm not struggling. I didn't struggle this week. Everything's fine at home. Thought life is good. Didn't talk about anyone's behind their back. None of that. We don't like to be transparent. We like to come and go to church, which is not even a correct term. We don't go to church because we are the church. How can you go to something that you are? But that's another conversation for another time. But we come together as the church, and we like to throw up facades, right? We like to give the idea that everything's fine, we like to offer prayer requests for sick people, which we should pray about or pray for our dog that is sick or whatever. And we like to throw up this, this facade, this fake persona of, I am a mature Christian. When the reality is, on the inside, we're just as broken and rotten as any pagan. And we're in the need of confession. We're in the need of Repentance. The reality is, if we were to put all up on this screen, if we were going to put up all of our thoughts and private actions of this past week, I think all of us, myself included, we'd run to the parking lot, right? We want out. No thank you. We want no part of that transparency. And so what's happening here in Ephesus, they are marked by confession and repentance. These were people, they did not pretend to be more than they were. They were real That is real, genuine spiritual fellowship. It's called community. It's transparency with one another. It's transparency. Then that brings an atmosphere to the church of accountability, of support, of encouragement. And so here was a church, a church of Ephesus. They were so marked by this that even unbelievers noticed. Even unbelievers noticed it. I'm going to try to use some books around the church of Ephesus, but even John, in the book of 1 John, an elder in the church, John wrote, he said in 1 John 1:7 7, uh, 7 through 9, he says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. So the idea that if we walk in that light, that idea of Jesus being light and Jesus exposing sin. So if we walk and live in the light, it says in 1 John 1, 7 through 9 that we have fellowship with one another. And then it says, the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from our from all our sin. And then John writes, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. And then he says, and I love this verse, don't you? Verse 9, 1 John 1, verse 9. What does it say? Maybe you know it. It says, if we confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So here's a church in Ephesus. They know this. They're confessing, they're repenting of their sin, and the people of Ephesus notice it. The non-believers in that community, that city, notice this confession, and what did verse 20 of Acts 19 say? It says, the word of the Lord increased mightily. It multiplied. So as I sit here and read that in verse 20, I encourage you to spend some time meditating upon that verse. And if we spend some time just chewing on that verse and thinking about it, this is the conclusion we come to. That the confession and repentance of believers is a gospel witness to non-believers. They see the result of Jesus, the price he paid on the cross, and, and the work of the gospel, his resurrection. They see all that Jesus did, and they see that at our lives, at work in our lives, and the change it results in our lives, and they see that, and you know what the unbeliever says? I want that. I want that. I want to be a part of that. I see this genuine, this authentic brokenness of a genuine believer of a Christian and their confession, their repentance. I need that change in my life. That's a direct result. So a log on the fire, we've talked about how the gospel here in Acts, it's like, it's a wildfire. I mean, it started there in Jerusalem with 11 disciples Then it grew to about a group of a hundred, then it just exploded to thousands. It began to spread like fire around the world. A log on the fire of the gospel towards multiplication of the gospel being sent out is a community that doesn't pretend to be more than they are, and that's the church. That's the church. And in your life and my life, there's a very real temptation to pretend that we're more than we are, isn't there? That's just natural human nature. It's normal to want to put on a good impression, to act like we have all of our lives together. And really all that leads to is nothing more than spiritual arrogancy. And when we understand and look at our lives, folks, there is real Freedom in being honest. There is freedom in being transparent and authentic. Because we don't have to keep up that image, that appearance of being all together as a Christian. But when we're repentant and when we're honest with God and with each other, there is freedom in that. So let me encourage all of us in this space, this room together, to drop the persona. Let's all commit together to stop having it this mascara of fake spirituality. But know God, know his son Jesus in such a way... That there is such a real, evident change in our lives that non-believers see it and they say, I need that. I want that. So I plead with you, those of you here, and I plead with myself for the sake of our own joy in life. For the sake of the gospel, and, so, and maybe even for the sake of those who are around you who are unbelievers, let's not pretend to be more than we are. Because what awes the world, what makes the church attractive to the community and to the world and those who are lost, what makes a, the church attractive is not our hypocrisy, not our self-righteousness, Honestly, it's our weakness. It's our realness. The Apostle Paul even wrote to one of these early churches. He said, in my weakness, he is strong. So let's dare to be weak. Because it is our weakness that turns to strength, and Christ uses that to make much of himself, and He makes him non-ignorable to the world. So let's commit as individual believers and as a church, let's be real, let's be authentic, let's not be afraid to confess, repent, make the changes in our lives necessary for our own joy, for the sake of the gospel, and for the sake of the unbeliever. Let's pray together. God, what a convicting passage of scripture out of your word lord to be honest as i was looking at this this week and studying it i didn't like this passage of scripture because in my own life i i like to put on this mask of spiritual maturity and lord i think all of us if we're honest we all have moments of that in our lives God, I pray that you would, in only the way that you can, only by the subtle, quiet, still voice of your Spirit, I pray you would take those masks off, expose us in your light, and give us the grace to be repentant and to make change in our lives, to become more like Jesus. Lord, we need your help to do that. Lord, this is something we can't do by ourselves help us not to try to even do this by ourselves it's only through your work in our lives that this can happen and i pray that you would do the work necessary do the surgery on our hearts and our lives to make this necessary god for our own joy do this for our joy for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of our community that we as a church love Help us to be real. Take away our spiritual pride, God. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.